John, do you have the record? I do. Who's got the record around here? Okay. <laughs> Who has the record? No one. Uh, okay, we'll come back later. We should all be Is able it to coming hear through this. yet. Well, no. I don't. I don't hear anything, Sean. Hmm. Hang on. I hear other things in my head. You know, the voices that speak to me, but I don't hear the record. <laughs> I know. Are they doing any Dell songs right now, or? No, they're doing that that some sort of third wave ska thing. <laughs> I don't know how that got in Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, lead trombonist in the Mighty Mighty Deltones, America's hottest cover band reinterpreting doo-wop classics in a third-wave ska style. <laughs> and uh, that... if you guys don't mind, I've just got a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first <laughs> oh up... no, go ahead. <laughs> No, we don't play any surf rock, and we'd really appreciate if people would stop asking. And two, we're going on tour this fall, opening for death metal legends and fellow Dells enthusiast, Lacerated Larynx. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Sean, did you have any time to do research for this episode? <laughs> <laughs> I'm winging it from here on out. Now, uh, there's a writer's strike, so I guess you wrote that yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I thought, you know, after years of being a musician, I'd try my hand at being a studio player, guys, but nobody wants what I'm selling. What is it? I, I want to be a prepared piano studio player. <laughs> the player of the prepared piano. Yes. <laughs> nobody. Nobody wants it anymore. You're not planning to uh, double up on any other instrument, just strictly prepared piano? Yeah. I wanted to specialize. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Let us know how it goes. I will. Well, I should at this point just say that I want to be the one preparing the piano, but <laughs> that's not what I'm here to do. I'm co-host Peter Cook, and I'm just here to learn the connection between founding Dell's member Chuck Barksdale and the character Avon Barksdale from The Wire. And of course, his nephew, D'Angelo Barksdale, too. So, Sean, hopefully you found the time to find that connection in your research. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> okay. There is a glimmer of a moment where I thought I was going to go to Charles Barkley for some reason, but... <laughs> I was let down. Some other time we'll do that. Joining us today is a WFMU DJ and erstwhile music journalist. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar for the First Time, Gaylord Fields. Oh, thank you. Thank you all. And it's, let me read your name tags here. There was Sean, Jeremy, Peter. And I can do this sideways. Peter, Sean, Jeremy. <laughs> Very good. How did I do? That's that's quite the little parlor trick you have there. Yeah, it, it, there are mirrors involved. 
<laughs> there are always mirrors involved. <laughs> Every good trick. Yes. Well, Gaylord, so excited to have you on the podcast. So good to be here. I'm I'm excited to talk about a, a record that means a lot to me. And once I half explain it mostly truthfully, I'll hope it'll have the same effect on others. Yeah. When we were scheduling this, you we had this was one that Sean, I believe, had put on our list of future albums. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, this was a, an early one that I put on our our main list of possible future albums. So it's always nice when we send the list to a guest and then there's something on there that they really connected with. So I've been excited to put this episode together. I actually, when I heard of the concept of this, of this podcast, I thought of this album and then I saw it on the list and I all but begged to be on it. Perfect. Well, maybe now is the time to tell the people which record that you have selected for the episode. It is the... LP, There Is by the Dells from 1968 on the Cadet label, which was a side label of Chess Records out of Chicago. Indeed. And where would you like to start to give the people a taste of the Dells before we talk more about this legendary record? Well, the thing about the Dells is they were a group that started in, I think it was 1952 or 1953. And with almost all original members lasted till 2012, I think it was, or 2009, something like that. So something like a 60 plus year career with almost all original members. Started out in the doo-wop era, went into the R&B thing, became an amazing soul band, and put out their first LP after a 15 year recording career. And this is that album. Well, which song would you like to play first for the people? Well, let's just go obvious. The title track. The opener. Yes. There is Side A, track one. Let me love you 
putting this record on for the first time just recently, I knew just a little bit about the Dells and had a general idea of what they sounded like. I knew that they were an R&B doo-wop group, and I thought of them as being you know pretty early on, like late 50s, early 60s. So I was so confused by the sound of this record right out the gate with that song. Then I look and I see that it's 1968 and it's their first album. And I started to question reality <laughs> right around that point <laughs> about what I knew of the Dells. And, and Gaylord, you kind of went over it just a little bit, how it was a decade and a half into their career before they put out their first proper LP. Well, that... I guess they were just a singles band before that. It's fair to say, I guess. But yeah, the most amazing thing is that early R&B indie labels, they were on a bunch of indie labels, VJ, things that are even smaller than VJ records out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that was a singles market. I'm Their first records were 78s. I mean, if it was 1958, they would have to be. So it's it's only at the time of the late 60s that clearly someone at Chess Records said, I think these guys are, are an al- they have an album in them, or some producer, in this case, the producer was, gosh, what, what was, was it Bobby Miller is the producer, mm-hmm. was like, you guys have an album in you, don't you? And they didn't say no, and that's to our benefit. I, I should note there were two LPs released previous to this, but they were basically just compilations of already released 45s. There was no like new original material or any kind of a concept to these albums. Oh, right. Yeah. Just, yeah. Comped the singles, of course, were the only way that albums were put out, especially if you were an R&B group. That's just a lot of outlay for maybe not a big return. Mm hmm. But, my gosh, if you're going to have a debut LP 15 years later, it had better be as good as there is. Yeah, they really uh, they really came out blazing with, with this one. They've been putting in the work for a while and had something to say with this record. That's quite the gestation period, but... Yeah. They pulled it off, <laughs> and I got to say, I, I had an impression of the Dells as being just like a doo-wop group but i was very surprised listening to this how how like soul it is and oh it yeah yeah really uh change it made me kind of question reality <laughs> like oh do i not <laughs> actually know what this group is and that that's the reality i just didn't really know the dells yeah the dells are definitely one of those groups that had major success and major influence but at the same time we're kind of underdogs a little bit in their market and if you were someone that didn't grow up listening to soul music it's a band that is easy to be unfamiliar with they kind of seem to be forgotten about in some circles but you know they had all the success they had 44 singles chart on the r&b chart they're members of both the rock and roll hall of fame and the vocal group hall of fame like, a, like we said, they were a band for about 60 years, and f- over 50 of those years, they had the same lineup. That's just longevity. Yeah. And it's, fun- <laughs> it's, it's so funny that you say, if you didn't grow up with this, and I, I think I should say, I did grow up listening to the Dells. This is my childhood. These songs, those 
well, not the 50s songs, of course. I, I was born in 1960, but listening to New York Soul Radio, that's what my parents listened to when I was a kid, I would hear their hits. I heard this song when it was a huge hit. That, that this was also the, the first single, I believe, from the album, from There Is. I think either three or four singles were released from this album, and why not? Because it's, it's that strong a collection. Yeah, there was one single from the album released before this, but I kind of got the impression that maybe the album came off the strength of the one single and they included it on the LP. I wasn't quite sure on that. But yeah, there was four singles total that were released that are on this album. Yeah, I saw this one got to number 20 on the the U.S. billboard and number 11 on the R&B chart. So it was a fairly substantial hit. Mm-hmm. And the thing about There Is is that it... You can't qualify. It's a straight-up amazing soul record. It has all the things you want. It has a driving rhythm. It has... It has these amazing strings. The arra- Let's just take a second to to bow our heads in, in honor of the amazing arranger, Charles Stepney, who worked on this record. A man he, who can appreciate prepared piano. <laughs> we, we're going to get the prepared piano very much so. He, he went on to... He basically was the guy who made Rotary Connection, mm-hmm. which was Chess's idea of a... Of a I guess it was Chess trying to find their own Sly and the Family Stone and wanting to have a sort of freaky white guys with freaky black girls kind of matchup. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that there is could have been a precursor for little experiments that became bigger experiments with Rotary Connection. That's my feeling about it. Yeah, I was really surprised how experimental this record is. <laughs> And then once I found out Charles Stepney was involved, well, that makes sense. Yeah, and the the first Rotary Connection was also 1968, so a really close time period that he was working with both groups. And they were two of the earliest groups that Charles Stepney worked with, so this was like his calling card to the world in a lot of ways. (laughs) I'm sort of still shocked by how cheap the Rotary Connection records are. I picked up the first one for eight bucks in the last couple years. Yeah, they seem to be forever, like, not weird enough for the psych heads and not funky enough for the soul people. It's like they just have this strange middle ground that doesn't do it for a lot of folks. But, I mean, it's, it's been well established on this show that we all love that group. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and count me as number four there, for sure. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, so my impression with doing all this research on the Dells is that the one of the big themes with their story is just one of persistence. There's so many examples of hard work paying off after multiple failures and them just continually improving and trying again until the success happens. Uh, Yeah, and the funny thing about the Dells is that every now and then they would have that hit that would just barely keep their heads above water as far as the record industry was concerned. And then they'd tool around for a few more years, have that one hit again, and then just enough so that they're not they don't have to get jobs at car washers or accountancy firms, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were consistent. They had a very, very long career. And they had, much like the Isley Brothers, they had hits in 
pretty much every decade. Yeah, they had 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s charting hits. I mean, maybe not massive number one hits on some of those decades, but they were still active and still making at least small waves. Yeah, their Wikipedia said they were one of two groups to have a hit in five decades, but it didn't say who the other group was. Hmm. It's got to be wow. the Isley Brothers. I think it's the Isleys, yeah. It probably is. I mean, did they have... I guess Shout was 1959. I'm just spitballing off the top of my head. But it could be them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I made that comparison while talking with Peter a few days ago about this record. In a lot of ways, the Dells kind of feel like the Isley Brothers of Chicago. And it made me wonder that if, you know, they had had younger siblings join the band and help kind of reimagine them in the mid-70s, maybe the Dells would be even more of household names. Oh, gosh, yeah. If the Dells with an Ernie Isley would be kind of incredible. <laughs> yeah, what if? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good heavens, yeah. All right, so what is the next song we're going to listen to? That's going to be Wear It On Our Face, which, if I'm not mistaken, correct me immediately, was, it sounds like a follow-up to There Is in a lot of ways, except more up-tempo, more strident, more desperate, and with prepared piano. Yes. So it, it, <laughs> if, if you're thinking, how can you possibly improve on the formula of there is the single? Oh, just a little bit of Ferranti, Teicher, John Cage, weird piano. And you'll hear, the, you'll hear it on the intro and you'll go, yeah, that works. Yeah, it's it's a seamless blend into the rest of the song. It's brilliant. Just again, hats off to Charles Stepney. So here is Wear It On Our Face, side A, track three. And you were correct, Gaylord. This was the follow-up single to There Is. Ah. Let's wear it on our face. Let's wear it on our face. 
fiery especially in that song it's uh like it's both very passionate but is also produced in a way where it sounds like overblown or kind of distorted and i thought it gives it's like happens a few times through this record and it really gives it an edge to me that surprised me and i enjoyed wow What's interesting is that I was going to make a comment about the lead singer, Marvin Jr., and how you get this sense that he has more shadings in his voice than the microphone can pick up. That's, yeah. So that's that of the sense I get from his amazing sort of gruffness. But it's it's just so tonal at, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that one I see was written by the producer... Bobby Miller. Looks like he wrote a fair amount of the tracks on this, actually. And so I have to think he was shaping them how he wanted them to sound through the group. Yeah, and from what I understand, Bobby Miller and Charles Stepney were assigned as like the production team for the Dells. So they were two guys that were working closely together with this group. And 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 one of the things you can tell is that they knew what this group could do and yeah. it it and i like when producers and arrangers want to challenge people want to take a group and say we know what your comfort zone is let's push you slightly out of it and see if you can if the stridency will come across and i think that's the thing that propels word on our face for me something that struck me when i was first listening to this being that it's 1968 with this, I don't know if edgy is the right word, uh, progressive production. It's, you know, it's definitely pushing into new territory from where the Dells would have started for sure. Hearing their sound with this updated production reminded me a lot of the Mothers of Invention records that were coming out around the same time, Frank Zappa, <laughs> which I always loved the doo-wop element of those early Mothers records. And there's times where, this kind of reminded me of that. And I thought that can't be right because the Dells are, you know, so much earlier. They would have been an influence on the Mothers of Invention, if anything. But then I see when it's released, I'm like, well, who, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure Charles Stepney was familiar with Frank Zappa. That I would, I would bet any amount of money on that. There, there's just that kind of risk-taking. There's that, those kinds of allusions to 20th century classical music that are, are, are obvious in, in Stephanie's arrangements. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Yeah, and not only are they updating some of these doo-wop influences from the early days of the group for a 60s audience, but the end result doesn't even feel like a 60s record to me. This record really feels like it's looking forward to the early 70s soul trends and kind of setting some of the groundwork for a lot of those bands. And it's so it's done in such a synergistic way that it's it's hard to give one person or one person credit. 
I really do think it, it is this meeting of, of greatness. This record just absolutely just thrills me at how good it is at, at predicting where soul is going while not rejecting where soul came from at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Gaylord, have you had this album since about the time it was released? No, I, I grew up listening to the Dells as a, as a kid, as I said, but I didn't own this album until I read about it in some, it might've been some list of 10 best records of some year or a retrospective of some sort. And this record was on the list along with a lot of other more predictable things. And it was such an outlier that I made a note of it. And then when I came across a cutout of it a few years later, this would have to be around the 80s, I went, oh yeah, that's the Dells LP that someone said was the greatest soul record of all time or something like that. And they weren't lying. Wish I could remember who that prescient person was. <laughs> if you're out there, let us know, listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump into a little bit of bio and learn a little more about who the Dells were and where they came from. They met in high school in the early 50s, like 52, 53, sometime around there. Uh, Thornton Township High School, that's in Harvey, Illinois, just south of Chicago. At the time, the members were Marvin Jr. on lead baritone, Johnny Funches on lead tenor, Chuck Barksdale on bass. Vern Allison, second tenor, and Michael McGill, second baritone. Their first band was called the L Rays, which when the band would think back and talk about that group in interviews, they were self-described as being terrible and unable to sing. However, they were persistent, and they just kept gigging as often as they possibly could and slowly developing their skills to the point where they landed a record deal with Chess in 1954. They released one single under the name of the L Rays called Christine, backed with Darling I Know. And if you take the band's word for it, it's the worst single you could ever possibly hear. While that may be an exaggeration, listening to the group's early material definitely shows how far they had come by 1968. Ooh, I want to seek that out. Yeah, now I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's it's available on Discogs and YouTube. You can you can check it out. It's definitely not bad, but it's it's amateurish. I'll leave it at that. After that first single, the L Rays left Chess and walked literally across the street to VJ Records. The label suggested they change their name, so the newly christened Dells released a couple of singles in 1955. Then in 1956, they scored their first big hit with the doo-wop classic, Oh What a Night. Peter and Jeremy, are you guys familiar with that track? Well, I know that it's not the Oh What a Night that everyone's thinking of. <laughs> When they hear that December title, December back in '63. It, it's it's not that hey, one. That's that song's about losing your virginity. Wow! Oh my God! Just not that one. Would have been weird because they would have been singing about the future. <laughs> Maybe they thought if they started a doo-wop group, they could you know get seven some. years from now. We, <laughs> yes. It's worth it, boys. Keep singing if we work hard enough. <laughs> I just checked out the Dells version for the first time today. The, I should say the, the different song completely, Oh, What a Night by the Dells. And I, I wasn't familiar with it. 
Which version did you hear, though? Well, I did notice there were two versions of it. The first one I heard sounded a lot older than the second one. Okay. <laughs> so you got to hear both of them. Yeah, the, the Dells were a group that would re-record their own songs frequently, almost, throughout their career, and sometimes would have even bigger hits the second time around. Those were the top two songs of theirs on Spotify, were the two different versions of Oh, What a Night. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I believe they were 15 years apart or no, but uh, 12 years apart or 13 years apart. I don't know. I'm going to keep, keep saying numbers and one of them will be right. And <laughs> Somewhere we'll edit, in there. <laughs> and we'll keep the right one. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Jeremy will love editing it. <laughs> so the, the band went through a nearly fatal car accident in November of 1958, which was so bad it caused the band to break up for about two years. That combined with just a general weariness of... Uh, working hard for the last few years trying to get off the ground with little success at times. In the car accident, Marvin Jr. suffered a lacerated larynx, which permanently altered his voice, adding to his signature gritty lead baritone sound that we have been complimenting throughout the episode. Michael McGill was hospitalized for months and almost lost his leg from the accident. After the breakup, some of the guys went home and got factory jobs, and Chuck Barksdale temporarily joined the band The Moon Glows, alongside a young Marvin Gaye and future Sylvester producer Harvey Fuqua. And fathered Avon Barksdale from The Wire. Ah, the connection. You found it. <laughs> so the band officially reunited in 1961. Their first gig was backing up Dinah Washington. Hot damn. When they got the gig, though, Johnny Funches decided that he wanted to stay home and raise his kids instead of being gone on the road. An admirable decision. The band, however, was desperate to replace him last minute, and they got word that founding member of the Flamingos, Johnny Carter, had recently returned home from the military and been promptly kicked out of his band. So the Dells tracked him down at a local bar and convinced him to join the group the night before the tour with Dinah began. So they were <laughs> rehearsing basically on the bus to their first gig. Now, now, is this fact or was this in the movie that you watched in preparation for this, Sean? <laughs> I did not even get a chance to watch the five heartbeats. So according to my research, this is fact. Wow. You can't write that kind of stuff. It tracked him down in a bar the night before... <laughs> Yeah, you know, pre-cell phones, so you had to just hit the streets and find people sometimes. I'd like to think that if Johnny were, you know, how far into his cups he was, he might have said a different thing. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. In what state they found him in, yeah, who yeah. knows. I, I, I agreed to what? <laughs> Wake up on the bus the next morning, like, what did, what did I He's do? Just throwing coffee in his face. Get up, Johnny. We got to practice. We're playing in an hour. <laughs> in the interviews I found, the Dells had very mixed feelings and memories of their time working with Dinah Washington. They talked about having just the utmost respect for her musically and loving her music, but that she was a, a struggle to be around at times. They had stories of being fired immediately after a gig for reasons unknown and then not finding out that they were actually still in the band until they were yelled at the following day for being late to rehearsal. And they just kind of never knew where they stood with her. But their time with Dinah really leveled up the band in a lot of ways. They were with her for about two years, pretty much right up until her untimely death in 1963. 
and they credit her for being the person that turned them into the band that they would become. Under her direction and also the tutelage of her vocal coach, Kirk Stewart, they kind of went from being just an amateur street corner singers to a world-class jazz vocal group. Yeah, I think I get the impression from when we studied and talked about Dinah Washington that she ran things not unlike, say, James Brown. Yeah, everyone <laughs> respected them and had very mixed opinions about what it was like to share space with them. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's one of those, in retrospect, a great teacher, but not at the time situations. Yeah, I, deeply flawed people, to put it lightly. And this was also like when they joined Dinah, she was fresh off the success of albums like What a Difference a Day Makes, Unforgettable, and September in the Rain. Yeah. <laughs> peak of her career so, pivotal time yeah <laughs> after dinah the dells landed a gig opening for ray charles on tour however they were promptly fired after only one show when they received three encores in a row and allegedly upstaged the genius himself <laughs> oh wow <laughs> During all this time, the Dells had continued to record singles on their own for VJ and also, again, with Chess Records via their Argo and then Cadet imprints. Most of these releases had very little success, but they were building a local following. But their career really turned around in 1967 when they were first paired with Bobby Miller and Charles Stepney. We said they really opened up a whole new dimension of sound for the band. They push them into new territory while also creating these arrangements that played off their history and their strengths of having the doo-wop influence, but also the sophisticated jazz vocal styles of their time with Dinah. And it just kind of all came together. You know, you got the complicated lush string sections, but also that rawness of the production, like we talked about. And it's just, it's perfect. Well, speaking of which, should we check out another tune from this record? Sounds great. I believe... The next one is a song called Love is So Simple, and this is a perfect one to really show that doo-wop background and influence. This is Side B, track four. Love.
showcase of the doo-wop influence and the incredible vocal talents of the Dells. I love how tasteful the arrangement is. It's, it's a full minute of sparse arrangement before any strings come in. The reverb is just thick with those vocals and you can just easily lose yourself in how beautiful that song is. There's a handful of songs that kind of pump the brakes and give the record a, a really wide dynamic range that I liked. Yeah, and there's plenty of soul and funk records where when they do the slow song, it feels obligatory. But this album is just interesting start to finish. There's really not a bad song on it, and it just it holds your attention. The arrangements in each song are interesting and change throughout, and the dynamic between song to song is interesting as well. What I find wonderful about Love is So Simple is that it is a straight-up doo-wop song but there's nothing about it that sounds like the 1950s. It's as if doo-wop were going concern throughout the 60s, and this is just where it developed. That's the way I, I hear it. Mm-hmm. The, the, I don't hear it as just revivalist or, or somehow just, I don't know, something ghoulish. It really does seem alive on this song, which is why I wanted to feature in, in in this podcast yeah and i feel like they're claiming that old world vocal group style opened the door for a lot of other groups to embrace that sound a lot as well the the other group that i kept thinking about that is right around the same time that had similar levels of influence is the delphonics their debut album also came out in 1968. So, you know, you had Tom Bell and the Delphonics in Philly, Charles Stepney and the Dells in Chicago kind of laying the groundwork for this more sophisticated soul and early almost disco influence going on here as well. What's the Dell Byzantines connection in New York to all this Dell stuff you're talking about? <laughs> oh my gosh. Have I, have really not of, I have not thought of the Dell Byzantines in what, 40 years? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about right. Uh, to, yeah. Tell them what famous filmmaker was in that band. Peter, you're the only one who knows that. Jim Jarmusch. <laughs> Indie sensation Jim Jarmusch was in that band. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I have a a little bit of info on the singles that came out from this album. If we want to talk about that real quick. So the first single that I'd mentioned before came out in 1967. It was a song called Ooh, I Love You. It was actually backed with the song There Is. Like I said, my impression was that that first single, because it was a minor hit, it allowed them to create the album and maybe they based it around the B-side. This album came out in 19, early 1968. And the three singles after that, they re-released. There is, like we said, as the second single, this time as the A-side. And it became a much bigger hit than the first time when it was on the B-side. Number 11 on the R&B charts, number 20 on the pop charts. 
The third single is the one we listened to, Wear It On Our Face. A little less successful, but still just enough for Chess to release a fourth single. And confusingly, the label went with what was essentially supposed to be an album filler track. It was a re-recording of a previous single from three years ago. And the new version's now famous sustained vocal note by lead singer Marvin Jr. was initially conceived simply because the album needed to be a little longer. That song, of course, is their big hit, Stay In My Corner, which became one of the group's career-defining tracks and a live staple for the rest of the time that they were out. That went to number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 and was their first number one single on the R&B chart. And then they actually followed up with a whole nother album in 1968. <laughs> they were a hard-working, prolific group. They, they went from no album from for 15 years to way too many albums in a short period of time. <laughs> it's... it's yeah, Strike While the Iron is Hot is, is definitely the uh, record industry model. Between 1968 and 1979, including this album, they put out 17 full-length albums. Jesus. <laughs> See? They, they, beca they, became, they became guided by voices at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guided by doo-wop voices, yes. <laughs> I, oh, may I mention that... Was please don't change me now a B side of one of the singles? I because I want to bring up that song because if you thought the the wear it on our face prepare piano intro was a little out there, the first like ten seconds of please don't change me now sound like John Cage. <laughs> it just... That was actually the B side to wear it on our face. So they were really. I selling that one to the prepared <laughs> piano fans out there <laughs> it was gonna be the it's, new thing of 1968. uh they 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 know what crossover means they just maybe crossed over to the left instead of the right yeah we need to pull in some of those john cage fans and then we can make some real money <laughs> covering all their bases well now that we've covered almost none of their career and <laughs> to the end of the episode well, I have just like a couple quick notes to round out their career. So after this, they went on to be one of the best-selling acts of the early 70s. 68 to 73 is kind of considered their heyday as far as album sales and chart success. Follow-up albums such as Love is Blue, Freedom Means, and Give Your Baby a Standing Ovation are all considered classics of the genre. They also eventually became known as the Mighty Dells, or sometimes even the Mighty Mighty Dells. Ah, uh, never. Um, like we said, they had charting singles through the 70s and the 80s, and they even had a big comeback in 92 when they were used as the main inspiration for the movie The Five Heartbeats, and they had their final charting single based off an original song that they wrote for the film's soundtrack. Two groups that have cited them as big influences include The Whispers, The OJs, uh, they did a record with the Dramatics later on. So like I said, that, that influence on the 70s vocal group sound is very real. Very cool. Well, thanks those for are my that. notes if, if you have any questions for me now, Jeremy. He does have a question for you. I can see it in his eyes. I do have a question. Do you have any similar recommended albums? And why did you pick the Ink Spots for one of them? 
I should have picked the ink spots. And also, why haven't we done an ink spots record yet? We're gonna. We're gonna get we're gonna, there. We gotta save a few good ones for the people. Keep them listening. Once we do the ink spots, there's no reason to keep listening to the show anymore. Oh, we won't be able to set the world on fire. <laughs> well, I see what you did there. Interesting. First recommendation. The Shy Lights, their self-titled album from 1973, featuring the single that we did a Patreon episode about, Stoned Out of My Mind. Another great Chicago group, and the Shy Lights' own Eugene Record produced the Dell's 1980 album, I Touched a Dream. Oh yeah, Eugene Record. Love that name as much as I love the name Joe Sample. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Marvin Jr. is a pretty great name, too. I mean, what would... You got it. Makes me wonder what Marvin Senior sounded like. <laughs> yeah, even raspier somehow. <laughs> yes, just sounded like a, an L train driving by. <laughs> it is Chicago. Next recommendation and one of my favorite early '70s records: Bloodstone, Natural High from 1972. Definitely a group that would have taken at least a little bit of influence from the Mighty Dells. The Mighty Mighty Dells. <laughs> Yeah, that 100% sounds like a metal album, by the way. Bloodstone, Uh, Bloodstone, Bloodstone, Natural Natural High. High. Yeah, also going on tour with lacerated larynx. Yeah, well, and there is a heavy group called Blood Rock. True, true. Oh, right, DOA was there. Big, their top 40 hit for somehow. Yes, (laughs) oh, early 70s, wonderful, weird times. Yeah. Last recommendation, this time from Motown. Check out the originals, Baby I'm For Real from 1969. Cool. Well, thank you, Sean. Those are all wonderful. Yeah, every record you named hits the spot for me. It, it's and, and you mentioned earlier the Delphonics, whose name must have... I mean, there are a lot of Del bands, you know, as we now know from Jim Jarmish, but just the idea that Oh, this reminds me that the Dells did a wonderful LP of Burt Bacharach, Hal David songs that was billed as, I think, the Dells sing Dionne Warwick's greatest hits or something like that. And it's it's fantastic arrangements. Yeah, that was in 1972. So part of that classic era for them. Yeah. Another record I found in the... I must have paid two bucks for and gave me hundreds of dollars worth of of love back what a deal (laughs) you can't get a better bargain than the dells a very consistent group like i said those that five-year period all those records are great and honestly there's really not a bad dells record their worst records still have a couple very good tracks on them so if you're unfamiliar just get out in the bins buy some dells can't go wrong sean i'm wondering if you happen to figure out how many episodes connected to charles stepney we've done by this point i know there was obviously the first christmas episode we did the rotary connection christmas album we did two ramsey lewis albums we did earth wind and fire those are all charles stepney correct connected correct yeah that that might be it so but no i did not go back for the official <laughs> i don't number I, I know sometimes when you have a little extra time <laughs> you go yeah, and that's find normally stats. my thing. <laughs> well, well, the real bittersweet thing is that even though Charles Stepney died so young, was like forty-five or so, he 
because he was just cranking out records at this prodigious pace, there is so much. He had a whole career in, what, 15 years or so? Good heavens. Yeah, yeah. A major influence and, like, beyond impressive body of work for such a short period of time. Yeah, I think it's like 10 years, essentially. Yeah, yeah. he, he really packed it in. Well, do we have any final thoughts on the Dells or anything else we wanted to say before we say goodbye for this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Oh, let's see. Dell's discography, if I do the math, $17 gets you one of the greatest soul collections you can ever have. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's avoiding all of their 80s records, too, which are not bad. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, these still, they're still all going for pretty cheap, huh? Oh, yeah. They're out there. Yeah, especially the closer you get to Chicago. You know, these, like we said, these were huge local hits on top of their occasional national hit. So you get out in the Midwest, the Dells records are even more plentiful. Wonderful. Well, Gaylord, we thank you so much for joining us with your enthusiasm for this record that I'm imagining a lot of people are going to be listening to more now. Ah, well, I, I'm glad I had this, this forum and it's a wonderful forum. So thank you for giving me a little space to talk about this wonderful and wonderfully cheap record. Yeah, we're excited to have a WFMU DJ on our podcast. Ah, yeah, WFMU.org. Yeah, we're, we're all big fans. <laughs> ah, likewise. Yeah, and folks can find archives of your work on WFMU on their website, correct? That is correct. Yeah, there are about, I was, I've been on WFMU for 30 years. Right now I'm taking a, hiatus because i was on the air for 30 years i think there are like 23 years worth or 22 21 22 years worth of archives there wfmu hosts archives forever so yeah that's how i listen yeah. to all the early best show episodes yeah they're all still there tom sharpling lives on at wfmu my go-to uh, music when I take bubble baths. Now all the listeners know I like to take bubble baths <laughs> as I like to put on an episode of Shrunken Planet. I love that show. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, Jeffrey, yeah, Davison. Jeffrey Davison. Yeah. yeah. He's out in, in Montreal now doing, I think he's doing radio somewhere in Montreal now, so find him. Oh, that's, Carry on. That's good to know because, yeah, I... Saw his show ended, and I just assumed he was done. But yeah, get, Jeremy, I got other good news. The best show has continued on after <laughs> WFMU as well. <laughs> oh yeah, I think they, I think they've done like three reunion specials, and that's it. No, that no, they no. The best show has endures, yeah. and yeah, is still still a wonderful thing. All right. Well, what is the last song we're going to leave people with before we? While we get out of here. Oh, well, it's going to be the remake of Stay in My Corner, their top 10 pop number one R&B hit, and a remake of a song from three years ago. And it takes a lot of nerve to A, remake a song that's still fresh in everyone's memory, and then to double the length. Yeah. Yeah, it's a formula that makes no sense, but it just worked somehow. That's <laughs> 
one of the many examples of the magic of this team being the right place, the right time, and the right people. All right. Well, we'll listen to that as we exit. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another installment of I to Buy That for a Dollar. We'll see you down the road. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I was Gaylord Fields. Now I'm going to go draw my bubble bath. (laughs) This is Stay in My Corner, side A, track two. Stay, darling. Stay in my corner. You make me old so proud. Stay, darling. Stay in my corner. To the world, I cry. How I love you Honey, I love you I really love you Stay.